Jimmy Ellingham is a Checkpoint reporter. In fact, he's host tonight. Uh, covers Manawatu for us. So uh, kia ora and welcome, Jimmy. Let's catch up on some news from the mighty Manawatu. Kia ora, Catherine. I thought we'd start with uh, Palmerston North Hospital. We talk about this uh, a fair bit, but there's a senior doctor who's been flown into New Zealand for one week in every four to work at the hospital as a lead clinician at the Opioid Substitute Substitution Treatment Service. There he works the other three remotely, so it's a bit of a unique arrangement there. Te Whatu Order won't say how much this costs, nor who pays for the doctor's accommodation and, and that sort of thing, citing employment arrangements, but does say these positions such as the lead senior clinician, are difficult to recruit for. Uh, The doctor at the centre of this is a a man called Leon Nixon, and he's filled the position since the middle of last year. No one I've spoken to questions his ability or experience or anything like that. It's more the arrangement that they're questioning. I mean, he's had 40 years in, in medicine and 30 in addiction service, but to only be physically present one week a month is, is perhaps novel, uh, to say the least. Te Whatu Order would not say if this arrangement was permanent, but it did confirm it had sought permission from the Director of Mental Health before making this appointment. Now, I spoke to Dr Sam McBride, who's the co-chairperson of the National Association of Opioid Treatment Providers, and he says the situation is the result of that shortage of expertise, but he says it, it could work. Ideally, you'd have someone who's located within the area is um, able to provide a bit more consistent cover. However, these are the sorts of compromises that are you know, having to be made to ensure that services continue to function. Where you've got areas where there are you know, kind of a limited range of specialists, then you need to think of how you can cover gaps, as it were. So in this situation, it seems like a pretty pragmatic response, um, given it's a very experienced clinician who's well regarded within the AOD field. It's an interesting one, isn't it? Uh, AOD, of course, being alcohol and other drugs. So actually making a case for this being uh, viable, it does raise the question why we can't access such uh, expertise uh, here. Be interesting to see how this goes, and if anyone's watching, I, I did try to ask Te Whatu Order if there were other arrangements, but I didn't really get an answer. But it's something I'll, I will return to just to, just to see how it goes, really. But uh, Dr. McBride did say that this particular field, the opioid, the addictions field, he says, in his opinion, it plays second fiddle to other disciplines in mental health. He says there's a lack of training and pathways, as in career progression, and more needs to be done there. He says there have been some changes made, but really it's left the likes of regional services particularly uh, vulnerable to staffing shortages, which is, I guess, what we've seen here. And while this situation has arisen, the Association of Salaried Medical Specialists Executive Director Sarah Dalton says it's more common to have locums flying in and out. And I think most people uh, who've been to the doctor might be familiar with that when you turn up to the GP and there's someone else sitting in the chair. But she says it's obvious that people who live and work in the same area is the most desirable thing. But she can understand the pressures to Fatu Order faces in recruiting for positions like this. And she makes the point that it's better to have the specialist fly in and out than have the patients sure. flying in and out. So, yeah, obviously less disruption there. She also says, Miss Dalton says, there's some aspects of the job that are fine to do over Zoom, but you're missing out on the likes of mentoring colleagues and those staff mm. training sessions, that, that, that sort of thing. But her argument is this shortage all comes back to the paying conditions that's, uh, that are being offered here. Let's look at the latest at Massey University. Are there more cuts now? There are. We spoke last year, didn't we, Catherine, a lot about the cuts to the sciences at Massey University, and, and that's among other universities 
around New Zealand, although some some have stopped. I think I read the other day Otago University has said there'll be no more cuts this year. But Massey University is proposing some cuts to its College of Humanities and Social Sciences. It's any day now the staff could be told about what their future holds. I think it was initially supposed to be earlier this week, but it hasn't quite. These things take a bit of time as they work through feedback and the like. We've said this before, but it's worth repeating. Massey last year had a deficit of more than $50 million and this year it's expecting a loss of $30 million, and that came on the back of 2022 was a loss of somewhere in the region of $10 million. And that largely, Massey says, came about because of the reliance on overseas students and, and then they disappeared. And this proposal for the humanities and social science, 40 people could go. It's about 25 full-time jobs or full-time equivalent jobs occupied by 40 people. Uh, I spoke to politics professor Richard Shaw. His job isn't on the line, but some of his colleagues are. He's been particularly outspoken about the the cuts that Massey is proposing, and he says this news couldn't come at a worse time. It's a matter of public concern. We think that the cuts that are proposed will damage our college and our university's capacity to contribute the kinds of educated people that economically, socially, politically, culturally are required at a challenging time in history. So uh, no courses, by the sounds of it, on the chopping block, but what will the cuts mean? Yeah, that's right. Massey has said there'll be no courses cut in this, but Professor Shaw and others I've spoken to say, well, this leaves them worried about workloads for remaining staff. Some of them are, in their opinion, understaffed. Anyway, perhaps the university might disagree with the number of academics versus the number of students. But even if there's few students on a course, it, it still requires, you know, someone still has to be there to teach it. Yeah, Professor Shaw, he's been quite emotional at times. I went to a public meeting late last year where he spoke very movingly about what he called a death spiral for the university. And it's as they cut staff, fewer students go there, more cuts are required. And he talk about, talked about the effects too on wider life, on sports clubs, on other aspects of the community where when you lose students, but also staff, I mean, Palmerston North in particular, many, many people in Palmerston North are employed by the university or through there in some way. So he says all of that is under threat. He also spoke about the staff themselves. He said many of them under threat, and we saw this last year too, of the science cuts at Massey and, and wider across New Zealand. These people are internationally recognised, they're high achievers. And he's put his name to an alternative proposal, Professor Shaw, to Massey that would aim to save all the jobs. And another one who's done that is geography, Professor Glenn Banks. His job was originally on the line when these proposals first came out last year, but uh, that was changed when a revised announcement was done in December. But he gave the example of the program he works for has six lecturers, and it's slated to lose two senior positions. So four of them will have to offer the same policy, or the same course program that's that's at the moment being offered. So that's a, an increased workload there. Massey University this time, last year I found it really hard to get an interview of anyone at Massey University, but this time the College of Humanities and Social Sciences Pro-Vice-Chancellor, Professor Cynthia did give me an interview, and it was interesting to hear from from Massey, you know, as opposed to just getting a, a statement. And she just reiterated that financial position. She she also said that she'll carefully go through all feedback, but was very very clear in saying her college has a deficit of six million dollars, and that cannot continue. What's happened over the past ten years is that we've had a significant decline in 
student numbers, and yet our staffing has not declined accordingly. So in a sense, we already have a gap between what our student income is, what our student demand is, and our staffing profile. And that's what this proposal aims to address. It's an interesting one, though, isn't it? Because, as you said, you might have fewer students, but you've still got to do all the things you need to do to run the course. And that's where some of the... um, academic staff are are anticipating more pressure, Jimmy. Exactly right. But Professor White, she did push back quite strongly on suggestions that it would be a death knell for, it would sound the death knell for Massey. She also said the public view among the people she's spoken to is that actually the university needs to live within its means and stop running deficits, that it's irresponsible to to do that. So those those two competing uh, views there. Uh, let's uh, revisit uh, a story of a, of a Palmerston North teenager. I remember you telling us about Carson Harvey. What's the update on his story, Jimmy? Yeah, so he was the man who, well, teenager who last year, 16 years old, he was he was at school and then went to the gym afterwards for a workout and, and collapsed, basically. He managed to make it home, but it turned out he had a, a deep brain bleed and that was caused by tangled blood vessels. But not only that, the surgery to correct this couldn't happen in New Zealand. So he had to go to London at a cost of about $150,000. A good portion of that was raised through a a Give a Little campaign and lots of fundraising activities uh, around Palmerston Palmerston North. He's had those two operations that were were required. One was early September and one just after Christmas. So he had a long wait in London too because he couldn't fly home uh, between them. I spoke to him after that first operation in December. He's since since arrived home. But this is Carson speaking from London about how he was going. I'm already noticing a massive improvement from what I used to do. I'm able to do pretty much everything. Yeah, still keeping up safe and everything. Just making sure I don't overly strain myself. So just not doing anything too crazy, no roller coasters or anything like that yet. I'm missing home quite a lot. I'm just missing some of the things I used to do, like hanging out with like people I know, just being with, just with me and my parents and, you know. He's, he's getting a bit bored with us. Yeah, getting a bit bored with my parents, want to hang out with <laughs> someone else. So where to from here? What's, what are they being told, Jimmy, about um, future progress for Carson? Yeah, you heard his dad, Bruce, uh, there as well, and they both told me that they found out in London that it'll actually be five or six years until they know if this operation's been a success, which is quite a surprise to them and quite a wait uh, quite a wait for a young man as well. But in the meantime, Carson's going to resume his schooling at Palmerston North Boys High School, and he's also planning to take a mechanics course. But yeah, a very, very long wait to find out if that operation worked. Yeah. Hey, just quickly, because we've covered it a lot and news has covered a lot also, further ructions over the future of Mount Ruapehu's uh, ski fields and, and snow sports with the Whakapapa Holdings pulling out on the um, uh, one side of the mountain, on the Whakapapa side of the mountain. What, what's the sort of, what's the general reaction to this at the moment? It really feels like it's getting to crunch point, doesn't it? Certainly yeah. for this season, and if there's no season this season, then... Yeah, not again is the reaction of some people because they they had hoped it seemed like with those preferred bidders for the two ski fields on Mount Ruapahu, Whakapapa Holdings for the Whakapapa field, obviously, and Pure Tūroa on the other side, people thought, oh, for once there's a, there's a sense of certainty and that surrounding area really does rely on the mountain for its economy. So the Mayor uh, Western Curtin, the Ruapahu Mayor, has, has said he's going to do everything he can to make the government aware of the urgency of the situation. It's important to remember though, isn't it, Catherine, the government has pulled 
in about $20 million in the last year and a bit to keep that mountain operating. Ruapehu Alpine Lifts, the previous company that went into administration, actually kept operating last year to just, to, just to keep those ski fields going. I, I was there doing stories at the start of last year and people were saying the lack of certainty is hurting their businesses and, and it looks like the same situation could happen this year but with the caveat at least one ski field Tūroa looks like it, that new ownership will happen. It's applied for a, a dock concession and there was some public consultation about that that's just closed. It's going to be an interesting one though because one side operating and the other side not uh, and the sheer demand of people they need in order to um, uh, you know build viability here it'll look it'll be an interesting it'll be an interesting one they need the snow to come too of course don't they Jimmy yes it it came last year though in good uh, in good volume Jimmy thank thank you. you very much go well tonight thanks for making time for us in the middle of a very busy day Jimmy Allingham who covers Manawatu uh, for RNZ National's uh, checkpoint and is presenting checkpoint tonight a little bit later on.